This is Alex West, co-host of The Pulse Podcast. Today's guest is Dr. Jerrica Kirkley. Jerrica is the co-founder and chief medical officer of Plume. Plume delivers gender-affirming care via telehealth for transgender individuals, currently operating in 37 states. Jerrica is a family physician who completed medical school at the University of North Carolina at Chapel Hill, residency at the University of Colorado, and previously practiced at Salud Family Health Centers. Last year, Plume raised a $14 million Series A round of funding led by Kraft Ventures, and their seed funding was led by General Catalyst. In this episode, I spoke with Jerrica about her journey to starting Plume, her experience as both a provider and patient of gender-affirming care, the current political climate, and Plume's role as an advocate for the trans community. I hope you enjoy the conversation. Jerrica, thank you for joining me on the Pulse podcast. How are you? I'm good. Yeah, thanks for having me, Alex. Of course. We have a tradition of asking our guests this icebreaker. What did you want to be when you grew up? Ooh, that is a good question. It was probably many things at many different points in my life. When I was younger, I think my earliest memory of something I wanted to be when I grew up was a firefighter. And then as I got older, I think it was a professional athlete of (laughs) all varieties and then gradually settled into a profession in healthcare as I got later into high school and early college. I think that's maybe a pretty common path. And certainly when you start off on the professional athlete hopes where your parents hope you will end up on the list, well, maybe maybe a doctor one day instead of a professional football player or baseball player. <laughs> well, tell me about your path to starting Plume. You know, starting Plume, I guess, really starts in those early days of realizing I wanted to go into healthcare at all. And for me, I decided I wanted to be a physician and work in healthcare because I really saw medicine as a vehicle for social justice. And before I had even dreamed up Plume, I saw a lot of communities around me that were being underserved uh, by the by the healthcare system, and I wanted to find a way to impact that and actually bring high quality healthcare to, to all people and especially those that have been left out of the system. And ultimately landed in a family medicine residency after finishing medical school. And that was the first place where I actually had the opportunity as a physician to provide healthcare to trans people and was fortunate to be partnered with a mentor during my residency who was interested in expanding access to the LGBTQ plus community broadly. And I quickly saw that there was a huge gap in care for the trans community. And especially when it came to things like gender-affirming hormone therapy, but also just basic primary and preventative care. So one of the things I did during residency was build out, one, a curriculum for the residents and for faculty physicians to learn how to provide gender-affirming care with both cultural competency and clinical competency, which ultimately helped that residency program become an access point for care for a lot of trans folks who didn't have options otherwise. And that sort of catapulted me on my career path where I I just, again, saw this huge need and also a system and especially an educational system that wasn't supporting it. So wanted to find ways to provide that education to healthcare providers, physicians and other provider types. So spent the next five plus years of my career providing direct care in a primary care setting in a federally qualified community health center, which included, of course, broad primary care, but a lot of um, more specific gender-affirming care services to the trans community, 
and then also teaching. And so teaching within that provider network, but also in academic institutions, uh, private clinics, other community health centers, um, really any healthcare environment that I could find to help provide that education and providing, again, both culturally and clinically competent care to the trans community. You know, I had been doing that for, at that point, you know, almost 10 years since I'd finished medical school and had seen a lot of the barriers and challenges that come up uh, when you are a trans person trying to navigate through the healthcare system. And it was really frustrating to see that and to see how hard it was for people to even get into care. And I was working at a community health center which is supposed to be the safety net, right, for people when it comes to access and, and payment. Uh, yet, folks were still struggling uh, significantly just to get into that setting. And I also had my own journey. You know, I came out as a trans woman two and a half years ago. And so I've had to navigate that system myself. I have the privilege of being a physician, actually knowing what is required from a medical standpoint, and of course, I will happily teach my doctors and my providers, but no patient should have to do that. Yet, you know, over a third of trans people actually have to teach their healthcare providers how to provide care to them, which is unacceptable. And yeah, so I think it was all that coming together where I was like, oh, there's just got to be a, a better way to really think through how we can center care around a community or a, around a you know, individual's needs and shape the system to really provide not only high quality care, but really a firm experience and a safe experience as well. Thank you for sharing that story. I can only imagine how much your personal experience here has shaped what Plume started as and and has become. Could you tell me a little bit more about finding your co-founder, identifying this problem as one that had a market, had an investment opportunity, and going from that initial idea to the product and services and team you have today? Yeah, absolutely. Going back to those early days um, in high school and undergrad, didn't imagine myself starting uh, a business, a startup, much less my own practice at that time. But for my co-founder, Matthew Wetchler, we are actually best friends from medical school. So we, we met our first year in medical school. And you know, what we both connected on was this desire to improve the system for both patients and providers, you know, physicians and other care team members, because we saw that that was lacking, of course, not just for the trans community, but for all people, like anybody engaged with the healthcare system. It was incredibly frustrating. So I think we, we took a, an oath <laughs> from those early days and, and you know, you're, you're bright eyed and bushy tailed walking into medical school and you're like, oh, wow, this is actually the reality. To, uh, to really shape that system in a, in a more positive way. So we've kept in touch through the years. You know, we obviously did medical school together. He did an ER residency out in California in the Bay Area. I was doing a family medicine residency in Denver. And we would talk all the time. And I think just share, you know, whether through our personal uh, interface with the healthcare system or, or via our patients, um, those frustrations that came up. And, you know, we, we would have a new idea probably every week <laughs> of, um, of how we're going to change the system. You know, and this ended up being one that stuck, but it was a real light bulb moment, I think, in a lot of ways where, of course, seeing this immense difficulty of trans people trying to get healthcare and, and get really high quality affirming healthcare through my experiences, both as a patient and a provider. And, you know, also seeing the emerging trend of digital health and virtual care. And Matthew had been working in that space uh, as a provider and also doing some consulting work um, to digital health startups who, especially in that time, and I think even now, many don't actually have clinicians as their, their founders. And so providing that 
connective tissue, if you will, to what it is like on the ground as a, as a patient and a provider. And we, of course, again, we're in contact all the time. And as I'm sitting here, like, gosh, like, how do I get somebody into my clinic who lives six hours away in Colorado and their nearest access point doesn't have a provider who can provide that care? And so, you know, we're doing like pop-up clinics and mobile vans and, you know, all this stuff. And, and it was just obvious that a virtual option uh, would, would be so helpful in, in that situation. And there were companies that were, were doing that, you know, taking a population with a relatively focused clinical need and constructing a virtual care model to meet that need, knowing that it is safe, it's vetted, you know, there's standards of care and very easy to do. And I think we saw the opportunity for a long time. Uh, you know, it took, of course, a huge pandemic to wake a lot of people up that virtual care actually can not only be an option, but it can be a better option for a lot of people. So that was sort of the the coming together of all that energy and the frustrations we were facing. And it was like, hey, you know, what if we applied that virtual care model to the trans community and specifically to address these life-saving needs for things like gender-affirming hormone therapy? And so we set out to do that. And so it started with just some money out of our own pocket in Colorado. And so we, you know, started a practice. Basically, we both had full-time jobs. He's working in the ER. I'm working in a family practice and on the side, seeing patients via a patient communication app, doing video visits, texting follow-up care, calling in patient, uh, calling in prescriptions to the pharmacy by phone because, you know, we didn't even have like a, a fully functioning EMR at that point. And, and so just really bootstrapping it to prove out that it was a need. And, you know, of course, talk to the community. Uh, we talked to a lot of people in the trans community, certainly had my experience, talked to my patients, um, but other people as well. And just really understanding where those pain points were and did our pilot back in August of 2019 and then secured funding early 2020, of course, before the world shut down with COVID and uh, which we can also talk about that. But I mean, that was you know just another one of those uh, reasons why virtual access point is important. But of course, for our community, we, we knew that was important beyond things like the pandemic because you know there's a pandemic of stigma and bias that is, of course, plaguing the trans community. We were seeing that a lot now in the news, but it's, it's always been like that. And so we knew that that was, was critically important for, for the trans community. Yeah, it's really interesting to hear about the experience as a practitioner and provider of gender affirming care, as well as this experience with virtual care and digital health from your co-founder coming together to, to meet this need for this population in a way that was most accessible. And to your point, clearly there must have been such incredible demand at first, you know, you're doing this on your phone in between clinic visits and calling in prescriptions. Clearly that did not deter anyone from receiving this care. And it just, it shows the the need you were meeting at the time. Could you tell us a bit more about Plume, the population you serve, the specific services you're offering today, and the progress you've made since that initial pilot in 2019? Yeah, Absolutely. Bloom, we're a virtual center of excellence for gender-affirming care. And that's what we strive to be. Our vision is to transform healthcare for every trans life and doing that through direct services, through direct clinical care, but also thinking how do we influence policy? How do we influence the standards of care? Taking care of such a large number of patients provides a lot of opportunity along all those lines. So our population, you know, again, we're targeted to the transgender or gender diverse community, essentially folks who are not cisgender, you know, cisgender for those who don't know would be anybody whose gender identity aligns with what they were assigned at birth. So if you don't fall into that category, you know, that is the broad umbrella of being trans or gender diverse. 
our population, of course, consists of the trans community right now between the ages of 18 and 64 because of some restrictions around getting consent, uh, minor consent on a state-by-state basis in a virtual setting and and uh, some Medicare restrictions there. Services that we provide, so gender-affirming care, just for those out there wondering what that means, at its broadest sense, is healthcare that is delivered through the lens of the lived experience of trans people, right? So that could be basic primary care, could be gender-affirming surgery, could be gender-affirming hormone therapy, uh, really any healthcare that is uh, delivered with that cultural and and clinical confidence in mind. But we provide gender-affirming hormone therapy, some other basic or essential primary care services that complement gender-affirming hormone therapy, things such as hair loss, preservation, sexual health, erectile function prescribing, but also getting into mental health as well. So both prescription and non-prescription mental health support for things like depression and anxiety. And some other things that we provide would be like letters of support. So hopefully this need goes away, but up to this point, you have to have letters of support from a physician, sometimes other providers for things like gender affirming surgery, also to change your legal gender marker or your legal name. And that that can vary on a state-by-state basis. So we'll, of course, provide those as well. As far as the growth of the organization, as I said, we started with just Matthew and I in Denver, Colorado, back in late 2019. And uh, now after a couple rounds of funding, uh, we are in 37 states providing all those services. I would expect that many of our listeners who have heard of Plume came in knowing that you all were providers of hormone replacement therapy. It surprised me in my research, the more logistical aspects of your work, the letters of support for name or gender marker changes, medical letters of support for surgery, the sort of things that you don't necessarily think of as a healthcare need, but Plume is stepping up to provide. Could you tell me more about those sorts of barriers that your patients face and the work you all are doing to address this? Yeah, I think it's great to point out those ones in particular, right? And so there's things that we don't classically define as a part of healthcare, uh, or maybe that healthcare providers don't even know that that is a need for patients. But all of gender affirming care, again, whether that's a letter, whether it's a prescription, whether it's a support group, uh, seeing a therapist, or an annual standard primary care visit for preventive health screenings, it all falls in the gender affirming care and it can all be life saving when done through the lens of gender affirmation. Um, A great example of this is the Trevor Project did their 2021 research survey. And so this is focused on youth, trans youth, and LGBTQ plus youth broadly. Um, But one thing they noted was for trans youth who did not have access to uh, things like a letter of support or the ability to change their gender marker or their legal name when necessary, had worse mental health. So the mere act of just having the the support for navigation, for a letter of support, or of course, for any prescription-based service, regardless of if it's targeted or labeled as mental health or behavioral health, can be, again, life-saving and actually improve health outcomes along many different lines. So I think this is an important thing to point out. But yeah, you know, that that's a good example of, of some of the barriers people face. You know, of course, just because we noted early on, the educational system is not set up to provide things like gender-affirming care and gender-affirming hormone therapy instruction on a universal basis to medical practitioners, whether that's medical school, nursing school, or elsewhere. So a lot of that education, if it happens at all, uh, comes later, you know, if, if providers even have access to it. Um, so because it's not universal, you have 
a massive disparity in providers having that clinical and cultural competency. So for example, you might have, you know, like an LGBTQ plus focused clinic, perhaps like a Fenway Health or UCSF, but those, as you can see, are located in major market cities, right? You start to get out of those big urban environments, that density of providers who can provide this care goes way down. And also stigmatizing and unsafe experiences go up. Just access to a provider period is, you know, probably one of the biggest barriers in geographic location, but it extends beyond the the provider's office. You know, it's, it can be navigating pharmacies. It can be navigating, you know, other third parties that have to do with healthcare. So I think really trying to think about that end to end holistic experience is what we try to do and solve for as many of those, uh, those barriers and, and pain points as we can. Plume is currently operating with a direct-to-consumer business model via a monthly membership fee. Often, healthcare companies are partnered with payers or employers to fund the care that's being delivered. I would love to hear about why you made this decision when starting Plume, and what benefits does it offer, and do you ever expect this to change in the mission to expand this access to care to your patients? So we started with a direct-to-consumer model for a couple of reasons. I think first and foremost, especially at that time, and a lot of has evolved even the past couple of years, but it certainly was not top of mind for a lot of folks in the healthcare industry, whether that be providers, you know, health insurance companies, uh, employers, et cetera. And, and for a lot of people, uh, you know, we all know that health insurance is most often tied to employment. And if you have difficulty obtaining employment or your employment doesn't have benefits or you're switching around a lot, then it's hard to even have health insurance coverage. But I think the biggest thing to, to note here is that uh, health insurance coverage does not equal access to care. You know, even in a, in a dream scenario, let's say, and the majority of trans people, you know, do have health insurance, that everybody has health insurance coverage. And, and so the next layer is, okay, does that health insurance actually acknowledge the unique needs of the trans community and, and specifically covering things like gender-affirming hormone therapy or gender-affirming surgery as those come up, uh, do they cover behavior health? Then you have to have to go to the next layer of finding a provider to provide those things. And again, that's where the rubber meets the road, right? So acknowledging that it can be hard to come across health insurance for the trans community for a variety of reasons. Um, if you have it, not guaranteed that you're going to have the coverage built in. If you do have the coverage built in, very unlikely, in fact, to find a provider to actually use that health insurance with. So we know for a lot of people that a direct-to-consumer right, cash out-of-pocket option would likely be their only option. And that was something that I saw you know, over and over, even in my own local community as, as a provider providing care. Uh, that again, even a community health center, right, was hard for a lot of people to get in. So we knew that was important from an access standpoint, you know, and trying to find, of course, a price point that would help sustain the business, but also looking actually like what does healthcare cost for people out of pocket when using insurance and, and trying to find something comparable or even in some cases significantly less. And it also gave us the ability to expand uh, quickly, but also with the creativity and really focusing on the needs of our patients. And so not being limited or constrained in that initial phase as we're building these services and really allowing us to learn quickly and refine them. For us, that was really two of the, the leading motivations there. And you mentioned that health insurance companies weren't necessarily at the forefront of making this sort of care available, even from just a financing perspective, excluding the challenge of actually finding a provider to deliver this care. Similarly, from an investment standpoint, 
often when companies are founded specifically to serve underserved or marginalized populations, whether that's based on race, gender, gender identity, or other factors, there's an uphill battle in describing the opportunity and describing the size of the market, the value of this investment opportunity beyond the value that you're obviously in a position to deliver to a patient population. I would love to hear more about the fundraising journey and the case you had to make that Plume was not only a necessary company for the trans community, but also was an investment opportunity. Yeah, absolutely. You know, as we're going along that journey, again, a lot has changed, right, in the world, and I think has opened people's eyes up to certainly equity broadly, but especially health equity and health equity for the trans community. But when we were first starting this journey, that those conversations weren't happening that much, right? Like if at all. So to your point, yeah, we had to be able to show that this actually, well, it's not only the right thing to do, but there's a market opportunity here. And one of the pieces that a lot of people aren't aware is just the really significantly increasing visibility of the trans community with generations like Generation Z, you know, 4% identifying as trans or gender diverse, which is huge, right? You know, we know that 20% of the population is Generation Z, like that is effectively the majority of the workforce now. And so it is a rapidly changing landscape, gender diversity, there's a a big spectrum there, right? And a really growing visibility that a lot of people just weren't even aware of. And understanding how that intersects with the, you know, healthcare needs of the trans community and that it, you know, a lifelong journey and can involve many different, many different facets. And so when you start to piece all that together, yeah, you really understand that actually this is not only the right thing to do, but an investable opportunity. I think you know, now we are, of course, seeing a lot more of these conversations around health equity, whether that be in the investor world, in the health industry space with payers, with employers. And I think why we have been so focused on the trans community is because we've also seen historically when it can go wrong, right? You look at a lot of organizations and spaces that speak to um, the LGBTQ plus community broadly and LGBTQ plus competency, which is great. And that's important. Um, but many times the trans experience is significantly diminished or, or left out altogether uh, in that conversation. Now that's changing, right? And people realize like, whoa, okay, you know, turns out we weren't addressing the needs of the trans community and we really need to do that. So I'd say like even in the last couple of years, that conversation has changed a lot, but that, that, that's where, you know, we, I think we put a lot of the, the emphasis and sort of acknowledging that, that need and that demand. If you told an investor that, of the rising generation had a massive demand for healthcare services that they were willing to pay out of pocket for. Surely there is an opportunity there. And it's really only in the lens of the specific community, really, and the bias and stigma that comes with that, that makes it a harder sell. But it sounds like just on the numbers, in addition, again, to the value you're clearly providing and what you're able to deliver for this population, there's clearly an opportunity here from an investment standpoint as well. Plume is entirely virtual today. We are seeing a number of companies who start virtual consider brick-and-mortar practices. We've certainly seen both traditional and upstart brick-and-mortar care delivery systems adopt virtual models or some virtual aspect. Do you expect that this virtual only model is going to continue? Are are there benefits beyond, you know, lower capital requirements to being a virtual only provider? How do you think about that in the context of trying to meet your patient population where they're going to be able to receive this care? 
It's a good question. I mean, I think at this point, we are very focused on that virtual first model. You know, and again, for us, really gets back to the crux of the the needs of our community, right? That, um, of course, existed before the, the big virtual care boom that came up in the last two years. You know, and, and we've even seen the trends, right? That that's starting to decrease, you know, speaking broadly to telehealth. But I think what's unique to our community is there's so many reasons why virtual care is actually preferred. So absolutely, I think it's here to stay. I think down the road, you know, who knows what might happen. I think we're always going to think about how can we creatively, as you said, like meet the needs of our community. And I think, yeah, we're just even now scratching the surface of of what we can do with virtual care. There's a lot of room to expand even within that. And we can see, you know, where those edges are and think about meeting those needs. But but for now, yeah, really staying staying focused on the, the virtual care model. You alluded to that virtual care being not just a way to improve accessibility for your patients, but the preference for your patients. Can you talk a little bit more about why that is and the factors that are driving that? I always love to talk through just like what it can feel like and look like, you know, as a trans person interfacing with the healthcare system. And I think we always have to remember that really that journey starts at our front door, walking out the door can be incredibly intimidating and unfortunately even dangerous or violent for many. Gosh, turn on the news and you know, it's and there's a lot of stuff out there that is unfortunately very anti-trans. But then you finally get to the door of the clinic and now you are faced with a gauntlet of individuals who you very well might be misgendered by or have the wrong name used, have to pull out identification documents that don't align with who you are without any caveat or acknowledgement of the trauma that that can bring, having to use bathrooms, which aren't safe or don't align with who you are, sitting in an uncomfortable waiting room. You haven't even gotten <laughs> to the door of the back office, and then you still have to go through a medical assistant, maybe a nurse, a social worker, a pharmacist, a phlebotomist at some point. Finally, the clinician you trust to take care of you, and again, oftentimes doesn't have the cultural clinical competence to do so. And then you walk back out and you face all those same individuals and have to get back to your door, right? And this is for any healthcare need. It could be you stub your toe, you need hormones, you're there for your annual preventive exam, whatever it is, right? And so I think when you kind of really start to grasp how frustrating and traumatizing that can be, and then every single time you have to go, you understand that, yeah, like if I can do this from the comfort of my, you know, whether it be my living room or my car or wherever that safe space is for me, heck yeah, I'll, I'll do that in a heartbeat. Again, like really what we're seeing is that if you can build trust and you build trust by showing that you're acknowledging people's lived experience, you're, you're creating an affirming experience for them, wherever those needs might gravitate around, that's what keeps people there, right? And, and makes it easier to, to have that visit. And, and if you remove the rest of the, of course, the noise um, that comes up that you oftentimes have to interface with in a physical setting, which, you know, you could even be the best physical clinic in the world, uh, but you still can't control a lot of those factors. I think that's always the thing to kind of come come back to, uh, that we have a, a very long way to go as a, as a world, as a society um, before, I mean, hopefully one day, you know, we can create that just super beautiful affirming experience that we're trying to craft in this virtual world. I certainly hope that becomes the the standard in, in our physical world one day. Yeah, it's a really interesting dynamic to consider, not just to expand access, but to deliver the most wanted, most desired, and safest care. And you know, as I took a look through the team page on the Plume website, 
it's pretty obvious and you're pretty quick to see how much of the team identifies as either queer, trans, or non-binary. Of course, your lived experience is a huge driver of Plume and the services you deliver and how you deliver them. But what role does the diversity of your team play in delivering this care and building this company? You know, I think that is one of the, if not, you know, the most important key ingredient to what we do. We are building a healthcare experience around a community. And to do that, uh, it is critically important to represent the lived experience, you know, of our, of our patients, of our community members that we're serving and acknowledging that, yeah, like my lived experience is one experience. And so really trying to bring in as many people as possible and provide that diversity of experience in every way, shape and form. I think through gender diversity, through racial diversity, uh, through age diversity, right? Like all the ways we think of how we're different and we're unique in building a team to do that. And, and that is the clinical team for sure, right? I mean, that's the the face-to-face touch point, whether it's our clinicians or our care coordinators who are interacting with our patients every day, but also through the rest of the company, you know, uh, of course, our product teams, our operations teams, our marketing and community teams all play uh, super important roles, but just less visible ways sometimes in how we're delivering care. And so as an organization, over 50% of the organization is trans and or gender diverse in some way. I think that is one of the ways that, that we do that and really trying to thread that experience in it in the organization all the ways that we can and of course just listening you know listening to our our patients and our community members and you mentioned the expansion to include behavioral health services earlier i would love to hear more about this new service line and the other sorts of ways you're considering expanding to meet those broader needs of your population Behavioral health is something that we knew we wanted to get into from the very beginning. Of course, operating under the constraints of funding and wanting to stay focused and really build out a a clinical care model that was very intentional and thoughtful. We we were focusing really on gender-affirming hormone therapy for the last couple of years. And excitingly, we're now at that point where we can start expanding into new areas. It's no secret to many of us, but for those listening out there, the trans community is unfortunately disproportionately affected um, by mental health conditions, and especially things like depression and anxiety. Now, what's really cool is that we know that, again, any gender-affirming care and things like gender-affirming hormone therapy or healthcare delivered through a gender-affirming lens is life-saving, right? You know, we know this is individuals. We have studies to support this. But having that additional support that's targeted, whether that is like targeted management of depression and anxiety through a prescription or through a non-prescription, of course, can just supplement that even further and keep improving, you know, health outcomes and and ultimately letting trans folks uh, lead happier and healthier lives. So for us, yeah, looks like, you know, prescription, certainly we have the the clinical model that has um, designed around that, being able to evaluate patients, assess their needs and, and provide prescriptions as needed, but also thinking creatively of what is it that our community really needs. And there's one model, a traditional model of behavior health, you know, seeing a one-on-one therapist, and that can be helpful for many. But interestingly, like we've been told as trans people that we have to see a therapist, right? Like we have to see a therapist to even be validated as trans, which is preposterous to be able to receive things like gender affirming hormone therapy. Unfortunately, that requirement has gone away, uh, but we still have to see a therapist or a medical provider, as we talked about earlier, to even be considered for a gender-affirming surgery. I'd like you to think right now of uh, one single surgery uh, that requires a letter from a therapist. And spoiler alert, there are none. This is the only one. Uh, you know, so hopefully that will be going away soon as well. But 
you know, we've been put into this paradigm of behavior health is defined by a system which wasn't thinking about the needs of trans people, right? And so, you know, for us, again, one-on-one therapy could be helpful, um, but also looking at things like support groups, you know, there's an offering that we have now for all patients. Anybody coming into Plume can become part of a peer-led support group. We're actually seeing great signals that that is really meaningful to folks. And so I think just continuing to go along that path of, you know, what are these ways that we can provide emotional support uh, to our patients, um, which may or may not fall into that kind of classic paradigm of healthcare or, or behavioral health as we have known it. So that's where a lot of our big focus is right now. I think, you know, again, always like listening to the needs of our community and seeing uh, where we can ex- expand into, but that being the, uh, the big focus of the coming year for sure. It's interesting. And again, to me, surprising, you know, I'm sure to you and many of your patients, unsurprising how much of a role that new service line plays again in addressing the logistical barriers to receiving gender affirming care. Of course, clinically, the need there makes a lot of sense, but systematically, it's another piece of that puzzle in getting your patients the care that they need. I'd like to shift a little bit more to the world outside of Plume. You referenced earlier the current political and cultural climate, anti-LGBT and anti-trans sentiment, to your point, is not new, but is taking an increasingly hostile role. Numerous states are debating or have passed anti-gay or anti-trans legislation. And this is focused on a range of issues, including education, youth sports, as well as specifically creating barriers to medical care including a recent directive in Texas that would aim to prosecute the parents of minors who receive gender-affirming care. To what extent is this legislation directly impacting the care that Plume is able to provide right now? With our current patient population, uh, because we're working with that 18-plus crowd, the bills that are coming out now, you know, very unfortunately, are focused on youth. So don't directly impact who we can provide care to. And I'll also say that, you know, we are, um, there's some logistical barriers there, but a huge supporter of gender-affirming care for all ages. And in fact, you know, myself and many of our clinicians have come from broader primary care backgrounds, you know, providing gender-affirming care for the entire age spectrum. But what it does do, in addition, is create a lot of downstream effects. You know, anytime you have anti-trans sentiment, um, whether just public comment, but especially when it involves legislation and directly impacting people's lives, it creates an environment just of less and less safety, right? As a trans person, regardless of who you are, how old you are, Um, knowing that that is out there um, certainly can stir up more anti-trans sentiment among other people. But just seeing that, again, makes it more and more intimidating to just even be able to walk out out your door, right? And it impacts the mental health of all of us. I think there's certainly a shared empathy, of course, acknowledging that taking away services to trans youth, which are life-saving, is is, um, absolutely outlandish and unacceptable, but also just feeling like this is the sentiment that's that's facing the trans community now can be pretty daunting. So there's a lot of downstream effects and that, of course, certainly affect uh, our patients as well. I think there can also be downstream effects in the, the healthcare provider community, right? Uh, there are those who, again, are directly impacted, potentially being criminalized for providing life-saving healthcare. But then there are those who might not be in that position, but maybe they become fearful of providing that care, right? For fear of retribution or criminalization, even though that isn't in the letter of the law. Um, and so then maybe you have even more providers who feel 
less comfortable providing gender affirming care to any age. So yeah, there's, there's a lot of direct and indirect impact that can come from that that affects all trans people. And what role do you feel Plume should play in either direct advocacy to combat this new legislation or you know, future bills or to directly support patients and providers and everyone who's being affected by it? I think we always look for opportunities to do that. You know, when we think about transforming healthcare for the trans community, it is through direct service, but also how we can be a partner, you know, and or a leader in the lines of policy and influencing, you know, whether it be standards of care for the trans community broadly. We're looking for every opportunity and we, we do that on a daily basis for a number of things, you know, uh, whether it comes to advocating for access to gender affirming care in a telehealth setting, advocating for access to particular medications within that, speaking out when we can uh, on legislation that is anti-trans, right? And making it be known to the world and especially the healthcare provider community that it is unacceptable and doing whatever we can to help, whether it's overturn those rulings or prevent them in the first place and be a resource for, for patients and their families and community members to, to get them to care you know, where they can. I think with that, just also leaning on organizations that are doing amazing work, you know, in that realm, uh, pe- people like the ACLU, you know, the National Transgender Center for Equality, and many others trying to elevate their platforms as well to make sure that that work is getting out there. And as you mentioned before, most of the Plume team is trans or gender nonconforming. What have you been able to do to support your own team who in their personal lives are, you know, seeing those downstream effects that you reference for your patient population. So certainly try to provide some just concrete resources from our, our people team and having um, mental health resources, access uh, or platforms that uh, employees can have access to and use and help facilitate connection with uh, mental health providers as needed. You know, I think there's something to be said for just as an organization with a lot of trans people and a lot of amazing allies. You know, we know that just walking into work for a lot of marginalized people and including trans people can be hard, right? There's going to be a lot of layers that we have to encounter and hide and protect ourselves. And so I think at the very least, if we can create a work environment that encourages people to show up as their full self, uh, you know, and their authentic self is what that means to them. It can go a long way in, in helping decrease the burden of all the stuff that's happening outside of work, you know, in creating that community within within the workspace. And a lot of that happens, of course, just indirectly in, in how we're thinking about community within the company, but as much as we can, providing those direct resources as well. And in addition to those specific issues of equity, there's a much broader range of health equity issues that I imagine are quite central to Plume and the services you deliver, but also the structural changes that you would like to see, whether that's policy, whether that's insurance coverage. But what are some of those aspects of the care you're delivering today or hope to deliver in the future that you feel are important to be addressed for your patient population to receive the care they need? Yeah, I think you certainly hinted at a couple of them there. Health insurance, you know, payer coverage uh, still has a long way to go. It's improving. It's now in the minds of, you know, many employers and health insurance companies, but a long way to go to actually make sure that coverage is comprehensive. Taking a step back and thinking about telehealth access broadly, 
right? There, I mean, there's many organizations which are advocating for these things, whether that's uh, making sure that folks have broadband access to even be able to access it, ensuring that um, providers are reimbursed on parity, you know, with telehealth as they would be with brick and mortar. And then dialing back in, you know, I think there are very specific things that affect the trans community. And so one example is regulation of testosterone. There's certain states now where we can't prescribe testosterone virtually because of um, regulation around controlled substances and, and testosterone gets put in that group, even though testosterone for gender affirming care is incredibly safe and, and actually life-saving and improves health outcomes. So that can also open up access to care for many people. And I think like outside of just telehealth, there's all sorts of regulation that, <laughs> that could help increase access to care for people. And I think about things like licensing, medical licenses, DEA controlled substance licenses, um, and having a more universal process there. Because even outside of telehealth, you know, we're a very mobile community. Since we are an MBA-run podcast, what is your career advice to MBAs interested in this space? Oh, wow. I love that question. Um, <laughs> very loaded. You know, I think, um, gosh, I will say I have learned so much uh, starting a business and running it for the last couple of years, along with my co-founder. One would just be like, be willing to learn, because um, there'll be a lot of learning opportunities. But the, the piece of advice that I always go back to is something from my college days and was part of a program I was involved with called the Caldwell Program. And the, the motto was think big. So I guess that would be my advice is to think big with whatever you're going into. And I would say that like, you know, really Matthew and I have always held that ethos of thinking big from the beginning, right? Whether that's convincing an investor that this is an investable opportunity or thinking of all the things that we can possibly do to create this amazing affirming experience for the trans community in different ways. And we're so excited, you know, like every phase <laughs> along the way, it's just like, oh my gosh, like, I can't wait to to get into this next chapter and and see where we go from here. And and, and we, you know, even though we've done a lot, you know, and a huge kudos to everybody in the company and on the team. Amazing work, and it always feels like you know you're just you're just getting started, and there's so much more to do. And we, of course, wouldn't be an MBA run podcast if we didn't ask if Plume was hiring, and what kind of skills and backgrounds are you looking for at the moment. Yeah, we're hiring pretty regularly. And uh, I think the easiest way to know what's available is just go to our website at getplume.co. You know, as far as background and skill sets, we're pretty regularly recruiting across the board. So definitely, if you're interested in, I'd say, transforming healthcare, right? Um, and I have a passion for ensuring that the trans community has access to the care it deserves and needs and are not afraid of the startup world, then uh, yeah, definitely check us out. Jerrica, thank you so much for joining us on The Pulse today. We really appreciate your time and perspectives. Yeah, thank you, Alex. Now it's been really great chatting with you. Appreciate it.